Thank you, Bob, for that ministry of music. What a blessing. It is the Lord's providence indeed that the final song was Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. When I was a child, I was a total worrier. I worried about things I had no right to worry about. I had an amazing imagination, and it caused me to worry about all kinds of things. I, I would worry about if my parents died before me, how long would they be in heaven if it was a thousand years, and a thousand years was like a day, so how many heaven days would pass, you know, minutes in heaven if, if I came in, you know, 40 years later or something like that. That's, that's where anxiety intersects Asianness. And the only thing that would calm me down was my mother singing that hymn. And it's just a reminder about being unashamed. Don't be ashamed of the old hymns. Don't be ashamed of songs that carry deep truths. Because those are the only songs that soothe the soul. And we need to remember that. That's not my topic for this afternoon. It is an honor, joy, and to be with you, and my prayer is that this whole time you have been strengthened and you are encouraged to always abound still more, that you realize here, having come from ministries all over the world, that you are not alone and you are not crazy, that you are affirmed and you are fortified so that you can go back and press on still more for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's always our prayer for you. And in light of this, as you remember, the first message this morning called us from the book of Joshua to be strong and to be courageous, and particularly to be strong and courageous about the word of God, to be unflinching and unbending about the scriptures. Well, my assignment is to live that out in this message before you. My task is to speak of the validity of Scripture, and the thesis is simple. The Scripture needs no validation. It validates everything. That is the thesis, not of this, merely of this message, but of the Bible itself. So will you join with me in prayer as we ask the Lord to bless this time? Our God and Father, I am so thankful for the brothers assembled here whose hearts are so on display to love you and love the sheep whom you have purchased with your own blood. And I know that there are times that are challenging and there are times that are demoralizing and often they can revolve around the life of the pulpit. Give us now clarity about your word. Fortify in our hearts the nature of the scriptures. Renew our minds in what the word of God is, in all its power, in all its certainty, so that we can go back and preach the next verse. So that we are not demurred from the task, but we understand how sacred and how awesome and how effective it is. May you be honored. May you be glorified. May your word be exalted. For the sake of the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. As we have heard, now more than ever, we live in a time 
where any kind of notion of truth, any kind of notion of absolutes, any kind of notion of certainty has eroded from our society's consciousness. The line between truth and error, what is real and fake, has been entirely erased. And we can no longer distinguish between the two. In fact, for many in our society, they essentially are the same thing. Now, it wasn't always this way. It used to be in the good old days that what was real was real and what was fake was fake. And they were clearly distinct and identifiable. In fact, in the good old days, the only fake things we really worried about and were concerned about were all the fake toys, jewelry, watches, and accessories that we got on missions trips from other countries. (laughs) And even then, you knew they were fake. They turned your arm green. There's a reason why. It's only 4% of the normal price because you get 4% of the functionality. If the watch is supposed to be a Rolex that lasts for 100 years, it lasts for four minutes. We knew that, and even then, what is fake was fake, and we knew that it was fake, and what was true was true, and we could distinguish between the two. We knew that what was true had absolute definitive power. It was substantive. It was defined. It was authoritative, and what was fake was not. We understood these things, but that's not so anymore. Now you have fake everything. You don't just have fake products. You have fake news. You have fake medicine, you have fake science, you have fake history, you have fake authors, you have fake media, you have fake emails known as phishing, you even have deep fakes. And on top of all that, you have fake Amazon reviews. (laughs) Unbelievable. And so now what everyone has to do is they have to ferret out what is real and what is not. And they have to figure out which one is which and what is fake and what is true. And they have to keep verifying everything. And the result of that is that people just conclude it's impossible to do this. And what is real and what is fake, it makes really no difference whatsoever. Everyone truly has become postmodern in the sense that everything is relative. And that attitude has infiltrated the church. It has infiltrated particularly how we handle Scripture, how we view Scripture. Now, no one comes out, at least no one predominantly comes out and says, I don't believe the Bible's authoritative or absolute. But actions speak louder than words. And people do subtle things that subvert the Scriptures. They say things like this. Well, of course I believe the Scripture's authoritative, but... I I have some additional definitions and categories that can really help the Bible out. And when you put those categories on it, then it can be able to be preached. So you have to verify the Bible's categories now. You have to verify the Bible's definitions. You have to approve of them. Or they'll say something like this. Of course the Bible's authoritative, but who really knows how to interpret it? And it's your interpretation versus my interpretation, and your tribe chooses this one, and my tribe chooses that one. Who knows what it means? And now you're caught in an endless cycle of verification, never able to reach the knowledge of the truth. Or sometimes people say this. Of course the Bible's authoritative, except... In areas of human sexuality, women's roles in the church and creation. When it comes to that, well, I don't know if the Bible can really speak on those things. And at that point, you have to approve of what the Bible says for public consumption. 
In all these instances, no one outright says, yeah, there's no absolute truth, and the Bible's not absolute, but actions speak louder than words. And the church is completely okay with this, because they've been doing this with everything in life, so why not do it with the Word of God? But perhaps the clearest illustration of everything we've been talking about thus far is found in the following example, that when there are fads and trends and we are called to respond to them, our response is this, preach the word. That's what you do. You preach the next verse because the word of God is sufficient, because the word of God is authoritative. And people say, do you want to modify anything in that response? And you think about it and you say, yeah, preach harder. That's what you do. And then, in response to that, people have the strongest objections. They say things like, no, you can't do that. You, you can't be effective if you do that. That, that. You cannot just do that alone. You need to do more. If you want to reach people, you've got to actually add on to that. It just won't work. It's not enough. If you want to be relevant, you need to be, have, or do something more. And at that moment, at that precise moment, let's be clear At that moment, what people are saying is that there is something outside of the Bible that validates the Bible, that says it's okay, that verifies that it's authoritative. And at that moment, what we are saying is that the Bible's relying on something more powerful and that there is something more powerful outside of the Bible because the Bible's depending on it for its veracity. At that moment, we are not sola scriptura, we are scripture as second place. And at that moment, even though we keep saying we are not postmodern, we are not postmodern, we have become total relativists with the word of God. So what do we do? What do we do? We need to reestablish and reassert the nature of scripture. At this book, no one validates it. It needs no validation. It is the absolute truth, and therefore, it needs no validation, but validates everything. That is the nature of the Word of God. And when we are tempted to deviate from that, or pressure is put on us to move from that, there is a passage we must remember in our own soul, and that is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Turn with me there. 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21. And we recall this text, for in it Peter establishes the doctrine of inspiration. And what inspiration entails is that this book needs no validation. Rather, it verifies all things. So we proclaim it. That's what this text grounds. And that is what we must speak on, for the word of God demands us to speak on it this afternoon. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. In discussing this passage, we really do need to understand its context. We need to understand its context so that we see the full import, the full significance, the full point and purpose and intent of these verses in context. That's going to be very important. At the same time, though, context is so useful here, particularly as we are discussing the nation and the notion of being unashamed. Unashamed. And the background of Second Peter really helps to show the weight and the gravitas to build a case to being unashamed, in this case, of the Scriptures. 
And that begins with the historical background. The historical background of 2 Peter is simple. These are Peter's final words. These are words of a man about to die. You say, how do you know that? Look at 2 Peter 1 verse 14. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has indicated to me. In other words, I'm going to die. And what does a man who knows he's about to die talk about? What does a man who has the choice to pick his final words talk about? What is on his heart? What is most important to him? What is central to him? That's the question. And for Peter, in part, what he talks about frequently is the scripture. Chapter one is our passage. That's the scripture. Chapter two, it is about false teachers and he uses the scripture against them. And in chapter three, he warns about false teachers who twist the scripture. Every chapter, you don't have a lot of chapters to work here, Peter. It's only three. What are you gonna talk about? What are all the subjects out of all the notions, out of all the disciplines that you could talk about? What do you speak on? Scripture, scripture. And he's not the only one. Think about the Apostle Paul with me, the book of 2 Timothy. Every chapter there, it is also scripture. Hold fast to sound words, 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 2, uh, rightly divide the word of truth. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. Every chapter. Paul, you don't have much space. You got four chapters. What are you gonna talk about? The word of God. And by the way, What does Paul conclude with? Bring me my Bible. Bring me my Bible. He talks about the word because he needs the word. He doesn't just say things about scripture. He shows those things about scripture. 2 Timothy chapter four. And what does this remind us of? What does this remind us to? It reminds us that what is on the heart of dying men as they are about to go to their heavenly reward, what, what is most important to them, what matters most to them is the word of God. They know that's the critical issue. That's the crucial matter at hand. And they also know this, that that's where the battle will be. That's where, why they're talking about it. They know false teachers have arisen and they know that they will arise. And so they are pleading with the church to remain faithful and to hold true to the word of God and to understand what this word is so that it will be resilient against the assault of false teachers. Let's be clear. The battle for the Bible is not just one time in history. The battle for the Bible is in every generation and dying men the dying apostles plead with the church to hold the line and in light of that we cannot back down we cannot back down on the issue of scripture we know there will be a battle the apostles with their dying breath struggled and communicated with all their effort this truth We know that their final moments were spent warning us about this. We anticipate this. And so we cannot shy away from the fight. We cannot bend and we cannot be ashamed. This is what mattered most to dying men. It must matter equally to us. Never forget the historical context of 2 Peter. These are a man's final words. These are his pleas. 
Scripture is the issue, and we should never be ashamed of it. And the logic that I just talked about, that's not just conceptually behind the book of 2 Peter. It's not just remote historical background. This is his heart that drives the entire book, starting from the very first verse of the book. Look at 2 Peter 1.1. It says this, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours. Why does Peter talk about receiving the same kind of faith as ours? Because that stands in contradiction and contradistinction to what the false teachers have. They are not of us. I'm talking to those who are of us. And so every word, every phrase, everything in Peter's argument fights against false teaching. This whole book is polemical from the very first words. They are fighting words against the false teachers and their teaching. Now, here's what's interesting. How does Peter propose to fight against false teaching? How does he propose for us to be resilient against false teachers? He says this, be sanctified. Be sanctified. Isn't that interesting? You can see it. In the following verses of 2 Peter chapter 1, he talks about sanctification. And there's a reason why this makes us so resilient against false teaching. It is this, that in verse 8, it gives us confidence in our salvation. And in giving us confidence in our salvation, we won't be disrupted by false teachers. It contrasts also the false teachers themselves. Notice verse 9 of 2 Peter 1. For in whom these things are not present, that one is blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. That's a false teacher. But if you're sanctified, you are not like them. So you can see by contrast what is true and what is false. And on top of that, you are consumed with the word of God if you are sanctified. After all, the basis for all sanctification, the driver of it, according to Peter, is add to your moral excellence knowledge. That's the knowledge of God, the knowledge that comes from Scripture. And so, when you are sanctified, you have the knowledge of God that allows you to discern. You have the contrast with the false teachers that allows you not to be deceived. And you are confident in your salvation, so you are not disrupted by the false teachers. If you want to be resilient against false teachers, if you want our people to be resilient against false teaching, promote sanctification. And here's the implication. Since a broad swath of the church is so captured by false teaching, what we have then is a crisis of sanctification in the church. That's what we have. We have a crisis of sanctification in the church. People may have therapy in the church. People may have moralism at best in the church. But what people do not have is scripturally based, Christ-centered, spirit-driven, Christ-likeness, Christ-worship, Christ-exaltation, God-glorifying sanctification. And that's what we need to give our people every week. That is our calling. And the reason Peter talks about this so much and impresses it with such urgency is because the word of God is sure. Notice the intro to this 
section in chapter 1, verse 16. It starts with the word for. This is what drives his discussion and his passion for sanctification because sin sanctification is based upon the word of God and the word of God is sure. That just drives all the certainty of why he talks about what he talks about. Sanctification is driven by the certainty of scripture. Scripture drives us to fight for sanctification. But in the flow of 2 Peter chapter 1, we know that chapter 1 moves to chapter Two, where Peter is going to take down and confront and contend against the false teachers. And so his discussion about Scripture is building up and providing a foundation for that. Scripture does not just show why we fight for sanctification. It shows us why we fight against false teachers. And that's very important. Because what we need to understand is absolutely, 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, it is textbook, systematic textbook, definition of inspiration. Amen and amen. But every word of it, in context, every phrase of it, in Peter's purpose, is meant to fight against false teachers. And we need to make sure we understand it like that. And Lord willing, in this message, we will. And at the same time, here's an observation as well. Sometimes people say this. Oh, I would believe in inspiration, the authority of Scripture. Oh, I would be an inerrantist of Scripture. But the problem is when I claim that, people point out that my beliefs are inconsistent with that claim. They've weaponized inerrancy. They've weaponized bibliology. And I don't like that. We shouldn't use bibliology in this way. Here's the question. How is Peter using bibliology in context? How is he using it in context? What is he doing? He is giving us a definition of scripture that fights against the false teacher. That's his point. That's his purpose in context. You could put it this way. Bibliology, in part, comes weaponized. Now, I fully agree that we must speak the truth in love. Amen and amen. And we must be convicted and convinced to do that because that is submission to the authoritative word of God. But that doesn't mean you compromise the high bibliology. And it doesn't mean that you need to be passive about what bibliology does. Bibliology does draw lines. We need to understand that bibliology does draw lines in the sand and our job is then to uphold it in order to protect our sheep. That's what bibliology does in part and we cannot forget that. And all of this is driven by the reality that scripture is above all, that it is the standard and it verifies everything and is subject to no verification. And there are three ways, there are three ways that Peter demonstrates this to us in his definition. Three ways that Peter lays out the supremacy of Scripture, the validity, the verifiability in that sense of Scripture. And here's the first one. Scripture is more sure than your experience. Scripture is more sure than your experience. Verse 19. In fact, it's in the opening words. And we have, as more sure, the prophetic word. Now, there is discussion and questions because different translations render this differently. Is if this is becoming more sure, as if something in context caused the word of God to become more sure, or is it more sure than what is in context? 
And the Greek grammar argues and weighs on the side of the latter, that it is more sure than what is in context. For one, if we wanted to talk about something being made, being caused to be more sure, we would use a verb in Greek that's not used here. It's more an adjectival construction, and as such, the adjectival construction, like many of you learned in seminary, that the boy is good, the man is nice, the person is evil. It's always is So it is here. The word of God is more sure than what is in context. Here's the question, though. What is in context? What is it more sure than? And it is more sure than Peter's experience, specifically his experience of the transfiguration. And it's worthwhile looking at this. Look at verse 16 at the end. He reminds us he was an eyewitness. This is a personal experience. It's a deep experience. It's an immersive experience. For that very reason, it's an experience that involves his senses. We can see that it involves a sense of sight because he sees the glory of God. It involves a sense of sound because it talks about, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And on a historical level, this is an immersive, powerful, riveting memory Peter's recalling this like yesterday, even though it happened about 30 years before. It's etched in his mind. He knows with every fiber of his being, this happened. This is real. Every sense I have, everything I know, everything in my mind attests, this is sure. But what does he say? And the word of God is more sure than that. Here is what we need to understand. The word of God is more sure than what you know you know. Think of all the things you are certain about in your life. Think of all the things you remember and all the things you experience. And you say, I know that is absolutely true. Scripture is more sure than that. That's how sure it is. It trumps everything in our experience. It is a category of absoluteness that is not found in our knowledge or experience as human beings. It is that definitive. Sometimes people want to add their experience to the Bible. They say things, as we've mentioned before, like this. Well, yeah, of course you have the Bible, but I've experienced things, and I know there are some additional definitions the Bible doesn't have and categories the Bible doesn't have. Or they'll say something like this, well, you can't really use the Bible to help people in certain categories unless you've had the experiences I have. Once you add my insight into the Scripture and through the Scripture, then you can actually properly minister to people. It's not good enough just to say what the Scripture says. But Peter does not say that your experience enhances the Scripture. Peter does not say that your experience affects the Scripture. Peter does not say that your experience makes the Scripture more effective. What does he say? And we have as more sure the prophetic word. This is what is most sure. You don't need to help it out. You don't need to add to it. It is sufficient by itself, and it is the definition of everything. Your definitions don't count. And the obviousness of this and the clarity of this is found in the way that Peter describes the scriptures. Notice what he calls them. And we have, as more sure, the prophetic word. Why does Peter talk about the word of God as the prophetic word? Well, it could be, and it is, that it's talking about the Old Testament, true. It's also because there's all this mention of prophecy in the definition of inspiration that it's linked to being inspired, absolutely. But there's a fundamental reason driving all of it. Namely, prophetic word reminds us that the word of God has prophecies. 
prophecies that predict things that happen. Foreshadowing that tells you what will take place. Predictions that tell you what will take and happen. And things that are decreed that will happen that way because they are decreed. In fact, if you actually look at the context, that's exactly what is happening in the context. The reason God the Father says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, is because passages like Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 said he would say that about his son. The scripture caused that event to happen. So if you think that the experience of man makes more sure the scripture, you have it totally backwards. Peter reminds us of a fundamental truth. Scripture is the cause of experience. Scripture is why your experience happened. It is actually the determiner of your experience. And therefore, it is absolutely more sure by a different category than your experience. People want to say that experience defines Scripture. Actually, Scripture defines experience. That's what we need to understand. And we don't just say that on a theological level. We say that on a practical level. And that's where Peter takes us. That's where Peter takes us. Notice what he says. To which you do well. To do what? To pay attention. The idea of paying attention is to have fixed focus. To be so concentrated on something. To to be consumed with it. And then also to be controlled by it. For this very reason, in 1 Timothy, it's actually used for the notion of drunkenness. Because somebody who is so concentrated, so consumed by and so controlled by alcohol is a drunkard. Here it is inverse, of course. And it is talking about our rigorous focus on the scripture Scripture determines your experience. Scripture always has. And Scripture must do so practically. And the intensity of it here is seen in the next phrase, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. If you're in the dark and you're in danger, which is implied by the word dark, you don't just want to take an intuitive leap forward. Why? Because that's how you die. Instead, here's what you do. You stare at the lamp. You stare at the light and see how it illuminates the path. And that determines every step by step by step by step. That is the way we focus on Scripture. We're not enhancing Scripture. We depend on it. We depend on it for our survival. That is what is truly happening. And the Scripture then determines our experience. And it does so sufficiently. It does so sufficiently. Notice how long we cling to Scripture. That tells you how far it'll get you, and in some, it'll get you to the very end. It's totally sufficient. Notice the last phrase, until the day dawns. What is that day? It's the eschatological day, a day that is described, for example, in Zechariah 12 through 14, which repeatedly uses in that day, in that day, in that day. It describes when Christ returns. And Israel is delivered, and enemies are destroyed, and the world is restored, and all the promises are fulfilled, and all things are made right and beautiful in this world. Scripture will get you there. Scripture will get you home. In fact, Scripture is so determinative of your experience, it actually determines your destiny. That's what Peter reminds us here. And it's not just on the outside, it's on the inside. It's on the inside. Notice the last phrase, and the morning star 
arises in your heart. The morning star refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, cross-reference Numbers 24. The language of arising is Christ's eschatological activity seen in Malachi chapter 4. And where is Christ's eschatological activity that Peter's focusing on? What does the phrase say? The morning star arises in your hearts. This is the moment when you have the most intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's not just outside of you, he's in you, and he's in you in a way that he's never been in you before. The word of God will get you home, not only on things outside, but on things inside. The word of God will define and determine your experience, not only external to you, but internal to you. If it does that, and since it does that, it is the determiner of your experience. Some people think that experience determines the Bible. Here's what the truth of the matter is. Scripture is the determining factor of your experience from beginning to end. And what that illustrates is that, of course, then, the Scripture is more sure than your experience. And in a culture where we think we know our stuff and we're so smart, what we need to remind ourselves is this. We're not smart. What does the analogy of Scripture say? We are in the dark place. We think we're so erudite. We think we're so illuminated. Where are we? We're in the dark. We're clueless. We're hopeless. We're exactly what Job 12 and Acts 17 say. We're groping around the dark trying to find it, and we never can find it. How do we ever think, how do we ever think that our experience, when we're so clueless, could be added on to the word of God? That's hubris. What is the scripture? It is the light. It is what illumines, and you cling to it. And in a culture that thinks our experience is something, what we must be crystal clear on is that our experience is nothing, and the word of God is everything, and you cling to it because that's the only way you survive. Scripture is more sure than your experience. Scripture is also more sure, second of all, than your explanations. Scripture is more sure than your explanations. And we see this in verse 20. Verse 20. With the opening phrase, know this first of all, that actually modifies the word, technically speaking, pay attention in the previous verse. This is the impetus. This is the driving factor. This is what helps us frame correctly how we can properly pay attention and handle the word of God. And that's going to be very important because people have some questions about the wording of verse 20. They wonder, is this talking about the interpretation of Scripture or is it talking about the origins of Scripture? Well, if you look at the wording of verse 20 by itself, in and of itself, it is speaking of origin. It is speaking of origin. It speaks of it exhaustively. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, every claim, every prophetic utterance, every divine revelation and all its claims and all of its assertions and all of its details and all of its words and phrases and paragraphs and everything, everything about Scripture, that's what it's talking about relative to its origins. And indeed, it is about origins. Notice the next phrase, comes by. If you think about the word come or comes by, you're thinking about how something came to being, how something was produced, how something came into existence. That's origins. And when you look at the words one's own, that is used in early Jewish literature to talk about human authorship versus divine authorship. And when you're looking at authorship, that's talking about 
origins, and even the word interpretation, though it should be translated as interpretation, it is thinking about interpretation in a specific way. Because this word, for example, is used in certain Greek translations of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 40, which talks about Joseph and how he received revelation from God, and he did not insert his own interpretation when he communicated that to others. This is talking about not injecting any kind of human subjectivity, any kind of human fallibility, any kind of human opinion and human flexibility into the writing and communication and articulation of Scripture. What this is saying is that human fallibility and subjectivity was never injected in the origins of Scripture. It is pure divine revelation, not just in its content, but in its communication. And you say, okay, I understand that this is about the origin of Scripture, and it's an origin and described in a very specific way, but, but why does Peter describe that origin in such a specific way? Why does he use the word interpretation? Why does he do that? Well, remember, in context, this is talking about how we handle the word of God, how we pay attention to it. And remember, in context, it is dealing with the false teachers. And so the logic is simple. You could put it this way. The way the scriptures have been is the way they will always be. The way that the scriptures have been is the way they will always be. If they never had human interpretation, human subjectivity from the beginning, then even in the interpretive process, there is no grounds. You have no right to interpret it any way you want. The way it has been is the way it will always be. And this is important because sometimes people in Peter's, they maybe they were adding their experience onto God's word, but they were also doing this. They could have waged an argument like this, saying, well, we believe in the authority of Scripture, but you have to interpret it. And so they just changed the meaning. They just modified the meaning. They just altered the meaning. They weren't adding technically. They were just transforming it. And we know that people in Peter's day were doing this because Second Peter 3.16 explicitly says that they were twisting the Scripture. And Peter says, you cannot do that. You cannot do that. The way the scriptures have been in their origin is the way they always will be. And that tactic is not just a relic of ancient history. People do this nowadays as well. They say, well, yeah, I mean, I believe what you believe about the Bible, but, but it's all just a matter of interpretation. And it's just your interpretation versus my interpretation. And who's to say that you're right and I'm wrong or I'm wrong and you're right or whatever. Let's just all get along. Kumbaya. And all the while, while they are saying that, they are promoting and presuming a nature of Scripture that Peter flatly contradicts right here. He says, you have no right to do that. You have no grounds to do that. Because subjectivity and such flexibility of Scripture was not injected into Scripture in its origins. And so you have no right to do that later on in the interpretive process. There is objective meaning in Scripture. There is objective meaning in Scripture. You could think of it this way. God intends to reveal. There's a reason why your Bible is called revelation and not hidden nation. Because he wants to tell you something. And our God is a perfect communicator. He, he says, let there be light. And there was light. 
perfect correspondence. Perfect correspondence. God does not say, let there be light, and then there were bananas. You don't have miscommunication with God. And God, by how he ordained inspiration, as this text attests, and as other texts like 2 Timothy 3.16 attest, he does that perfectly down to the word. There's no miscommunication here. There is objective meaning. Do we always hit it? No, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Speaking of which then, this is the standard that not only shuts down false teaching, but it is the standard that is over us, over you and me. After all, we can't forget that this is modifying the term that urges us to pay attention to the scriptures. There may be times you think you have such a great insight, such a great point that you want to sign your own Bible But if you twisted the scriptures to get there, you've done no one any favors. We have no right, brothers, to use this book any which way we want. We have no grounds to do so because the way the book was written is the way the book is. And no human interpretation was involved from the beginning, so there is none there and none to the end. Scripture is not an illustration for your agenda. Scripture is not an illustration for your sophisticated point. And Scripture is certainly not some experimental playground where you can just play around and try to figure out your lofty ideas to wow people. Scripture is none of those things. We have no right to do that with Scripture. Rather, we have a hermeneutic of surrender. We have a hermeneutic of surrender. You know, one of the most frequently used verbs in regards to Scripture is listen. Listen. You know why? Think about how you handle children. How do I know that my kids are listening to me? Simple. Their mouths are not moving. (laughs) Brothers, we need to stop moving our mouths when we come to the scripture. It's not our voice. You listen. God speaks. That's it. We have a hermeneutic of surrender because we have no right to handle scripture any which way we want. It is of no human interpretation from its beginning. It is of no human interpretation then of its end. It is more sure than our explanations. Contrary to false teachers who think their explanations stand apart from scripture, scripture stands in judgment of every explanation. Scripture is more sure than our explanations. Well, since Scripture is more sure than our experience and Scripture is more sure than our explanations, there is a final point, which is really the conclusion of it all, and that is Scripture is more sure than everything. Scripture is more sure than everything. And we see this in verse 21 with the word for. The opening word for shows reason. It shows explanation. This is the underlying reason that drives everything that Peter has been talking about. And therefore, it is the broadest, the most comprehensive reading. And therefore, it is about how Scripture is above everything. And how Peter will now deal with that and prove that is by approaching the situation and defining it negatively, what Scripture is not. Notice what the text says. No prophecy was ever made by the will of man. 
This is broader than what was talked about before. What was talked about before was simply about how it was conveyed and communicated. This is talking about the message, the content, everything about the scripture. It is not by the will, desire, authority, or anything of the like of man. It is purely divine. We know that. You say, that's obvious. Why does Peter say this? Well, because in context, in context, Peter has talked about how people will use their experience to add to the word of God. That was in the first point. And in the second point, we learned how people can often twist and modify and change the scripture. So you have addition and you have modification. But what's the last thing you can do? You can take away from scripture. How would you take away from scripture? You would demote it so that it's just a human opinion and you can get rid of it. People were doing this presumably in Peter's day. People were doing this in the days of the early church with the Ebionites and with the Martianites. And people are even doing it today. They talk about unhitched from the Old Testament, unhitched from the New Testament, unhitched from 66 ancient books. They talk about these kinds of things. They they do it when they ignore what scripture says in direct contradiction to their views. And they do it with these kinds of words. This is my favorite example. And they say, well... You, you, you can't just, we, we don't want the words of Paul. What we really need to care about are the words of Jesus. At that moment, I'd like to ask a question. Namely, who sent Paul? Who's the guy that commissioned him? Who's the one in Acts 9 that says, this one will bear my name to the Gentiles? Who's the one that said that? Sunday school answer, Jesus So you can't pit the words of Jesus against Paul. You simply cannot do that unless, unless you think Jesus' words are divine and Paul's are man's. And at that moment, you have fallen right into the crosshairs of what Peter is talking about in this final verse. No prophecy was ever made by the will of man. And with that, Peter has shown you cannot add to the scripture. You cannot modify the scripture. You cannot take away the scripture. The scripture is unalterable. It is inviolable. It is absolute. It is above everything and subject to nothing. And that is where Peter is leading us and pressing us as he now transitions from a negative definition to a positive definition. Consider the authorship of scripture. Consider the authorship of Scripture, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit. This is amazing. The idea of being moved is the idea of being carried. Often people refer to Acts 27 as the winds carrying a ship with its sails. This is perfect guidance, perfect leading, perfect superintendence, so that whatever man said is exactly what God said, word for word. It's astounding. Astounding. On top of that, though, it should be noted that the word moved is actually the same Greek word earlier found in verse 21, which is the word made, which is also found earlier when in verse 17, it says such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. And in verse 18, where it says, and we ourselves heard this utterance made, it's the same Greek verb all the way through. And what is the emphasis then? It was not made by the will of man, but it was made by God who speaks revelation over and over and over and over again. What this demonstrates without a shadow of a doubt is that not only God's superintending this to perfection, absolutely, but that this is a supernatural book through and 
through. Every part of it, supernatural. Every part of it, divine. Now, what that means is, out of all the books in all the world, in all of history, there is no book like this. There is no book like this. This is the one and only one in all of history, in all of the books that have ever existed and will exist that is like this. And because it's not one of many, because it is one by itself, it is over all. The authorship attests to that clearly. But it's not just the authorship, it's, it's accessibility. Notice what it says. Men spoke, verse 21 You might say, well, doesn't that undermine the authority and sufficiency of Scripture if men are speaking? No, because we've already covered that these men were perfectly guided, perfectly guided to speak exactly what God wanted them to. But why does the text emphasize that it's man speaking? Because this provides and takes away any kind of excuse that people have about Scripture. You see, when men speak as God has moved them so perfectly, then they are using their language and their way of communicating. There's no bait and switch here. There's no deeper meaning, no fuller sense, no kind of secret symbolism. This is about normal human communication. Men are speaking with normal rules of grammar, normal rules of context, normal rules of vocabulary, and even normal rules about idioms, figures of speech and metaphors and symbols. We do believe those exist in scripture, but the key is this, that there are rules that determine when they happen. Just like in normal conversation, we don't take everything that somebody says idiomatically or as a figure of speech. In the same way, we take things in scripture according to the rules of grammar. This is why we have literal, grammatical, historical, because we know that here, by God's own definition, men are speaking. And what this reminds us then is if you can understand a conversation and if you can do your homework and understand language and carefully assess it, if you do your homework, you can understand your Bible. You can understand your Bible. And that matters because sometimes people say they use this loophole. They keep saying, oh, yeah, well, the Bible's an error and all that it claims, but who knows what it claims? And since I don't know what it claims and it's all a matter of interpretation, I guess I'm not accountable. Well, God says you can actually understand because man speaks. Loophole closed. And so man is without excuse. Man is without excuse. He has no excuse before God. We have no excuse before God. And here what we have is a totally unique book by its authorship, by the meaning that is accessible to us because it is so clear, and that makes it authoritative. That's the conclusion. That's the conclusion. Notice the final words of this verse. But men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That means everything they said, every single thing, down to the individual word, Every nuance of grammar, every single thing is God's divine message. And that carries comprehensive and definitive authority. Why? Because this is God speaking and he always has the final word. He always has the final word. Think about the character of God and how he speaks. Genesis 1, God spoke and it was created. Proverbs 8, God speaks and it actually ordains the way things work in creation. 
How does God sustain the world? By the power of his word. Even in Psalm 33, it reminds us that the word of God triumphs over the schemes of man. God's word has that kind of power, and that is found then in this word of God. So what do we do? We preach the word. We preach the word. Sometimes people say, oh, if you just do certain things, you'll make the Bible more powerful. More powerful? What are you talking about? This is the word that spoke the world into existence. This is the word when preached, which regenerates hearts. What do you mean more powerful? This has all the power. Sometimes people say, oh, oh, if you do this and that and the other, you'll make it more relevant. More relevant? This is everything from Genesis to Revelation, beginning to end, the totality of history and reality. This is what is relevant. In the end, God will not be asking people, how did you make the Bible relevant to your life? He will be asking. (laughs) He will be asking this question, were you relevant to the Bible? Because the Bible is the plan of God and we fit in it, not the other way around. Man talks a lot. But God has the final say. And so if you're going to preach the, anything, you better preach the last word on the matter, so you better preach the word. Because the word of God is the word of God. It has final authority. It is more sure than everything. It is more sure than everything. And with that, Peter, he has exalted and he has established the scriptures to their proper place. He has shown us That this book, it does not need our validation. Rather, it validates everything. Why? Because it is more sure than your experience, more sure than your explanation, and more sure than everything. You can't add to it. You can't modify it. You can't subtract from it. It is the unalterable, inviolable word of God over all things subject to none. So what do we do? We preach the word, preach the word in season and out of season, unashamed. And when someone comes up to you and says, but, but, but I think you need some of my experience. You need some things to add on to the word of God, some new definitions that have come out, some new categories to layer on top. We remind them the word of God is more sure than your experience. Preach the word. And we say when some scholars come and say, but I don't really know if you can really know what the scripture says. And how do you know your interpretation is right and my interpretation is right? It's all just a mixed up muddle of ambiguity. We remind them the word of God is more sure than your explanation. That the word of God never had that subjectivity to begin with. And so it never has it to the end. Preach the word. And when skeptics come and say, I don't think the Bible can speak to this, that, or the other, we remind them, the word of God is God's word. Therefore, it has his authority. Therefore, it is the final say on the matter. It is more sure than everything. Preach the word. Preach the word in season and out of season, unashamed. And may it be, may it be that we do with ourselves, and with our people. Exactly what Peter says here. 2 Peter 1.19. Pay attention to this word as to a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Brothers, this word will get us home. This word will get our people home. And may we be those who cling to it 
until God fulfills all things and fulfills all things in us. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for giving us your word. We don't deserve it. You didn't have to give it. But this is our security, our light in the dark place. And in a society and in a world and even a Christian culture that is skeptical, make us more, all the more ready to urge our people and urge our own hearts to cling to this book and to preach your word. And may it be, as your word always will be, may this bring us home. In your name we pray. Amen.